This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au is where you can find them. One of Sydney's best catering companies have turned to home delivery in the greater Sydney area. Go and find them. Why would you bother trying to cook? We've got family friends coming over this weekend. We don't want to cook. Bella Catering is where we're going. Order some extras. Have some leftovers in your fridge. Very easy for you to do. Bellacatering.com.au I hope you're all taking care of yourselves. It's a fucking crazy year and it continues to be more and more crazy. And I think emphatically I can say um, that everyone's having a 2020. So if you're listening and you've been following along, oh my God, we deeply appreciate you over here at One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much for listening to this show, to Josie and the Podcasts, to Miami Nice, to of course Increment Vice, which is edging towards a finale. Thank you so much. We have great guests coming up for you on this show this week. All of them returning for a massive week to engage with what's been happening in the world. Let's get to it. And so what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the, the virus. And I think he's going to have it in good shape, but you know it's a very tricky situation. It's uh, it goes it, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more press. deadly. This is 5 per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. The last time that I spoke to my guests today. There have been so few returning guests on all the President's Minutes, to be fair, because um, we've just had an amazing lineup of people, but there are people I've desperately wanted to have back, partially because, just as my friend, dear friend Maria Lewis said, Blake, you gave me nothing to talk about. It was basically a black screen, lots of then heckles and uh, foul language, which I dare not repeat on this show. But what I will say is that my great guest is someone I really love talking to, and I thought I would give her a juicy minute. And... As now the head of editorial at the Pedestrian Group, which is things like Business Insider, Life Hacker, Gizmodo, Kotaku, and formerly the editor, the managing editor over at Nova Entertainment's Goat, it's awesome to get her to talk about a Bradley scene. And so I'm really thrilled that now 92 episodes between drinks, I get to welcome back one of my favorite people, a longtime journo in Oz, worked all over the place, nearly a decade with News Corp, decade with News Corp all those sorts of things, but. Um, really great to have her back to talk about a more juicy minute where lots more stuff happens than the last time that we had a chat. The country's not on fire, but there's been a pandemic. There's been revelations. It's just unbelievable. So why not welcome back the great Melissa Matheson. Mel Matheson, welcome back. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Blake. What an intro. You've just pumped up my tires massively. (laughs) This is what we can do. Everyone needs a hype man in 2020. We all, (laughs) all of us feel like shit. And I think that my intros, because I'm just deeply grateful for everyone's time who, you know, 
take the time to do this silly exercise with me um, that I so feel compelled to do. Um, but I, I really appreciate you um, being a part of the show again. So thank you. Thanks. It's great fun. And I think the first, I got the fourth minute last time and I think the most exciting part was the sticky tape on the latch. Sticky tape on a latch, a little <laughs> bit of behind the scenes stuff. Now, now you're, you're up with Jason Robards, you're with Redford, you're with Hoffman, shit's moving. You know, it's exciting times. We're getting into the juicy stuff. It is. It's like, it's been a scary process. And so for folks who are listening, you know, we're rolling into a hundred, hundred episodes is usually a massive milestone, no matter what you're doing. And your cake involved. Cake. Well, I'll tell the guests that I've lined up that I'm expecting <laughs> cake. You um, get a, a, a Woolworths like 450 mud cake. I'll take it. I'll take the Woolworths <laughs> caramel mud cake if I can. Um, but you know, yeah, I'll definitely take it. But you know, it's just, it's, it's with these exercises, um, the, the stamina of the exercise, sometimes you just like in the reads and you forget about it, but this year has been so crazy for journalism. So crazy for news, so crazy for politics all around the world. Um, and just so crazy for, you know, drawing a line in sort of humanity and empathy across everything. So this project has been, you know, where some people are like, I've baked, I've done this. I'm like, I'm going to do this faster than I feel <laughs> is possible just to keep my sanity, to talk to great people, to focus on something just so that the doom scrolling will stop. Um, and so that's, that's this project. And now right on the edge, you know, 40 episodes is an eye blink um, because I feel like that first 40 really, really flew by. Um, but here we are again. And, and, you know, like you said, it just gets juicier and juicier from here. The revelations get bigger, but I mean, in the last week, we've had the real Bob Woodward, which is crazy because I haven't talked about it too much on the show yet, interviewing Trump for 18 hours. It's like, an, it's like a minute-by-minute minute podcast, but in an interview, and as early as February knows the virus is deadly and those revelations come out like last week in the middle of recording this show, and it's just unbelievable. Do you know what I find really interesting about those interviews is the... The, the reaction didn't seem to be as explosive as the, um, the other tapes that came out before the last election. So the grab, grab, grab her by the pussy came out yes. just before that. And everyone was like, Oh that my was, God, he's going to lo- he's going to lose the election over this. That was his it's previous mixtape. <laughs> it was his yeah, previous right? mixtape. Everyone's like, this is disgraceful. And now we've got these, these tapes with a revered journalist and everyone's like, yep, not surprised. Like, do you know what I mean? That, that's what we're just also, at this point where we're just like. But also people have gone as far as to say, Mel, like, oh, fuck Bob Woodward. Like, how dare he keep this stuff to himself? And I was excited that you were coming on the show to sort of talk to you and go, let's just for a second pump the brakes from day one every journalist in the United States on both sides or or like, you know, let's forget that stupid. That's a Trumpism. I'm going to abandon it from my vocab, but journalists on, um, from different spectrum, across the spectrum of politics. And I'm not, not even saying going into the Fox news propaganda, but just across the spectrum of politics have inquired at his reaction and questioned his reaction in relation to the revelations of coronavirus. As in, if you're the president of the United States, you, and there is a virus that pops up in the country, you'll be briefed on it. Similarly, the same way that Biden and his other political opponents on the other side began building momentum, attacking him, going, 
if you're the president of the United States, you would be briefed on this, that it's deadly. No, it's not deadly. Well, why does, why does Justin Trudeau hear that it's deadly? Why does Justin Boris Johnson think that it's deadly? Why does Scott Morrison hear that it's deadly? Why does Jacinda Ardern? It's like on that full spectrum, people were inquiring about it. And I feel like because it's like a confirm, it's, you know, there's that whole confirmation bias on that spectrum, whether you're like Trump's a dope and he's a selfish racist asshole or you're behind him was kind of reflective in your responses to that. But like now that it's like, no, he knew, he knew right from day one that that was the case. And says it so calmly too. Yeah. Like so calmly. It's just like, yep, it's pretty bad. Like, (laughs) and, and, and Bob, you can get it through the air, Bob, you can get it through the air. (laughs) And it's like, yeah. Okay. Okay. Fine. Um, It's just, it, it fascinates me that the, if the deflections have been amazing, the deflections are so great. It would be like the only way I can describe it. And I don't know if this reveals too much about my personality, but it's like, it's imagine, (laughs) imagine getting caught at one stage of your young life, cheating on a spouse or a partner, right? Like a girlfriend. And if they caught your phone and then you get mad at them, for reading your messages on your phone. That's basically the media equivalent of what has happened now. Not that you're in the wrong, that you have done the bad thing and that you've been the piece of shit. It's that they read your phone. If you're the person- it's gaslighting. It is it's exactly what it is. It is 100% gaslighting. And so that's what's funny. It's like, they're like, oh, how come so-and-so arranged these interviews for him? And then it's like, well, how come Bob Woodward withheld that information? It's like, well, wait a second. Who knows what the deal, we don't know what the deal was for the interviews. We don't know when they said they were allowed to be released. We don't know what that access, you know. Because it's all part of a book. It's all part of a, it's all part of a book that's coming out, but also around what the access meant. So you can have the access to this and you can publish it on this date, but you can't circulate any revelations that come, whatever the stipulations were, who knows. Which is pretty, as you would know, is pretty common with a lot of big interviews. Um, And particularly with politics, if you're getting an exclusive, it would come with conditions of this gets published at a certain time. Mel, you and I have had them for entertainment gets. Yeah. You know what I mean? (laughs) I've had to sign NDAs and things to interview certain people and you're like, really? Is this necessary? Yeah, yeah, an NDA... I, I think it's okay that I'm talking to Jason Momoa. Like it's all right. <laughs> you know, like it's not the end of the world. So yeah, I, I think it's really funny. The deflections have been hilarious. People attacking Bob Woodward, people attack like, and, you know, far left attacking Bob Woodward, you know, sort of centrist, you know, validating that this is their opinion, the rights attacking people who allowed it to happen with Trump. Like, you know, you know, who, who would, who in Trump's minders would allow this to happen. It's been a really interesting thing, but the, the facts of the matter are, that beyond a, beyond a reasonable doubt, it's verified that Mr. Donald Trump knew that this was deadly and responded yeah. to it poorly. And now a lot of people are backpedaling and saying, you know, he spoke about it in those terms for strength, et cetera. It's like, no, he denied it for months and continues to deny it and continue to deflect himself. But the fact of the matter is he knew it was deadly. They weren't prepared. They didn't respond in the correct way. That's it. The, the reality of the of the US voting system is that the people who back him, that's not going to change their minds. Yeah. And so this whole election rides on people registering to vote and getting out and voting. And it seems like such a foreign concept for us because oh, we're hugely. like, election day in Australia is, it's like my Christmas. I love it because it's like you get up, there's a barbecue, you get all dressed. Everyone's like, it's a pretty good mood. Sauce, sausage sizzle. And I love 
asking the there's like usually political pundits. And even if you're very politically engaged as, you know, I don't want to assume that of any of the people who are listening or guests, but it's like, if you're really politically engaged, I love when the people on the day come with a pamphlet to try and convince me to vote for someone else. I'm like, just a quick question. Do you really think that anything you're going to say right now with that pamphlet is going to convince me to vote differently? Like, I love that because in Oz, it's so condensed. It's like two to three weeks of where we get all our debates, all our ads, all of our concentrated There's dose of restrictions on the ads as well. Like yeah. they, um, like they get cut off like 24, 48 hours before the election is very strict, but I used to go to my old primary school to vote just so I could feel like a giant walking uh, into that hall. I feel like a giant in all primary schools, oh, all, prim- all then, primary schools. But then I got gypped because my old school did not have a sausage sizzle or cake school <laughs> or anything. And I was like, fuck this. I'm not wasting my voting rights on you. If you're not going to deliver with the goods. If so I, I can't get a, if I can't get a lamington, at this place or a sausage sizzle, I'm out. Oh, well, Blake, you say that. When I went, I went to another school, closer <laughs> to my home now, but my brother gave me the hot tip that they had the best barbecue. They had gourmet sausages. Oh, wow. And proper caramelized onions. And they had pink lamingtons as well as the chocolate. It's like, this, what a day. It's the, what a it's, day. This is why democracy works in our country, is they know how to ply us with... Delicious food and treats once we've done the good thing because it is compulsory. Um, so even if you're not engaged, but if you are and you've filled out diligently your entire electoral ballot, you get a reward with sometimes like Mel, delicious caramelized onion. I mean, it's just beautiful. That's just the little touches. But yeah, no, that's, that's what it's deeply foreign to us. And I think that that's on a Saturday morning. On a Saturday morning. It's deeply foreign to us um, and talking to a lot but of people. But you would have it on a Tuesday to begin with is weird why are you having an election on tuesday saturdays it's crazy to me so just everything about it is crazy i don't know and let's just talk about it maybe just in the corporate world sense for a second it would be like multiple people going for a job that they don't know that they have yet while you're expecting them to work and they've got a campaign with every person in the company. And it's like, you, how productive can that person really be at the thing that they're meant to be employed for? So if you're an incumbent president, they're expecting you to be out on the campaign trail, pressing, you know, the flesh, kissing babies, etc. So in some ways you can still build in what would be your routine of like checking in. But I just don't know how you can expect to be a Senator and be productive because if you're meant to be representing people and you're out on the road every single day, how are you really representing your constituency apart from like canvassing the votes of other people? I just like that fundamentally doesn't make sense. It goes for like two years. Like two years. Can you imagine if they did that here? There would be a revolt. No one would put up with it. No. Like we get sick when sick of all the spills and you know the rotating doors the American system is just so just off the charts we took the amount of money that must be spent just to encourage people to register to vote just make it compulsory attendance it's not that hard yeah like it's, it, it just it seems so bizarre to me there's a simple solution sitting there right right ready for you we've even given you the starter of get a barbecue going 
it encourages people to get in on the day. Places like Texas would, I mean, they already thrive with barbecue, but like. Oh, can you imagine the brisket? Can you uh, imagine that? Oh, election day brisket. Oh, yum. Now, now seriously, if, if, if I, um, if, if I ever get asked to like host a little stall, I'm going to, I'm going to go to town. I'm going to cook some brisket up. I'm going to have the sausages. I'm going to really like pay off people that are participating in the democratic process, regardless of their political affiliations. Um, I, I, yeah, no, it's, it's really weird. And I don't know what, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's like all the way back to, you know, the writing, the constitution and the formulation of the United States as a country that railed against compulsory voting. Like, I just don't like everyone having a say one man, one vote, but it goes so far as to demonstrate that by like, we're not going to make everyone go because you would imagine just some pure like popular vote or like the States and the number of people say, for example, California, I saw an interesting stat of like, 46 something like 46 million americans are represented by 40 odd senators 44 senators in in most of america and then you get california which is represented by two senators and their population in the whole of california is 40 million people and so it's like a massively democratic leaning state, you get somewhere like New York, 18 million people. That's, you know, 50 million out of what, 350 to 450 million people. <clears throat> Roughly. I don't know where that, where they're currently sitting in the whole population. <laughs> Donald Trump has currently killed 190,000 of them. So I can't get a Ooh. finger. I can't get a finger on the number, but it's like, if you imagine that all those people had to turn up on that day and then vote Democrat, for example, like they just like their default setting was I'm voting for the Democrats. I'm not voting for Republicans. It would be a lands like it wouldn't be a landslide of any, of any uh, scale that we've ever experienced in our lives. It would just be colossal. And so that's, that's just seems so strange. Um, even with all the gerrymandering stuff, like the popular vote would be like, 250 million to a hundred million. And it'd be like, yeah, this it's pretty emphatic. Like the people of the country want this person to be elected. It's just wild. The whole system just blows my mind. Like it's <laughs> it just, yeah, I, I'm just baffled every time I'm like, what are you doing? Like the amount of money too, the numbers of them, the millions and millions of dollars. You just like, you could have had a healthcare system. I mean, it's, it's, and it's also just everything. Like it's, it's, it's not, it's, there's so much of that where without, you know, and, and maybe this is me just being like blue sky, whatever, but it's like, if your military budget on a yearly basis is a trillion dollars, let's just say like 1.1 trillion. It's like, could for one year, you just make it 900 billion. Like if you just for one year made it 900 billion, then like whatever it is, then like $1.1 billion or a hundred billion dollars, whatever those numbers are. Cause it's so colossal could just pay off instantaneously all student debt, like one, one year. And then the next year it's just fine again. Like, or just go just for one year, we're going to half the half trillion and just go, we're going to pay back all this debt. We're going to build a healthcare system. We're going to promote infrastructure. And it's like, it would transform the whole country in a year. And I just don't understand. Like, I don't understand. The money's so colossal. I just will never understand it. But also, 
in Australia, like um, the massive difference, and I think this is a fundamental one and good for people who are listening, is in Australia, our political parties are using taxpayers' money to fund their political advertising to a large extent. Like they're using a pool of money that is put aside and there's not much of a donation culture or a, you know, there's not the, the lobbyist culture that exists in the United States. So that money's not coming from anywhere else but our pocket. So if they were like, we want to play this game for a year, but you have to pay, because they would have to find more taxes or cut more things. Eventually, no matter what side of the political aisle you sit on, the rubber's going to hit the road and you're going to go, no, you're wasting too much money on all this pageantry and bullshit. And we don't want it, nor do we need it. Just do it in three weeks, get it over and done with. And it's finished. It's a crazy. And there's such, there's such strict rules around how the money's spent. And it's, you know, you at each election, if you get so many votes, you get so much money, like so much, kind of like a refund. You've put all this up to run for parliament. But, um, yeah, there's very strict rules of where your donations came from and you've got to declare everything. And, you know, and that's when the clever journos get some spicy stories because they're like such and such donated money into, you know, old mate down here, <laughs> um, dig up the dirt. But, um, yeah, it's just, I, look, I'm glad we have our system. That's all I can say. I'm really glad we have a barbecue. I'm really glad we have, you know, it, look, Parliament has its issues, but I think we have the best election day in the world. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, it's, it's, it's only the fingerprints, it's only the, <laughs> the far-reaching fingerprints of the Murdoch design that is trying to co-opt Australia to be more and more like America in all of its news coverage and, and you know, it, those sorts of things that are a challenge that uh, you probably know better than anyone else having worked in a Murdoch paper for, oh. Murdoch papers for nine years. It's interesting. I saw a tweet. Um, David, I can't even remember who it was that tweeted it, but um, said my, my um, Melbourne friends are like, Oh, I'm sick of lockdown. Like, like being under government lockdown and their American friends were like, I wish our government would care about us. <laughs> and it's, yes. It just struck me. It was just like, that's the diff, like just watching a pandemic like this and seeing how different governments have handled it and things like that. And then of course the queen of all Jacinda Ardern gets up and you just like, <laughs> she's just gliding through and just love her to bits. Stadiums full of people. I watch, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, you, you watch, you watch, you watch New Zealand I think I can't remember what day it was, but it was a day a while back. And I even mentioned it on the show. I was like, there's a day where they talked about, you know, eclipsing a hundred thousand deaths in the United States. And that same day, Jacinda Ardern announced that all COVID restrictions were open. Like they opened the whole country back up and there were clips of New Zealanders watching rugby, like obviously their favorite sport and whole stadiums of people. arm in arm crying watching rugby together. And I was like, this is it. Like, what are we like? Like, do we want to all hold hands and like watch a great sport and have fun and like cry together? Or do we want to bitch? Like, it feels like the blueprints right there, guys. And it's scalable. Like they're literally the closest country to us by proximity and in values and in all those sorts of things. It's like, can we just copy paste? Like what the hell did you guys do? Like, there was a report a couple of weeks ago about the difference between countries led by women and countries led by men and oh. who had the highest success rate. And 
you know, Jacinda is not alone. She's got quite a sisterhood of leading ladies who have done quite well out of this pandemic. And um, it's the funniest thing in the world. It's like, you know, they're going to eventually have their election, which has been deferred and delayed, but it's just like, I think the I entire- swear, if those Kiwis do not vote her back in, <laughs> so help me, I will swim across the Tasman and rouse on them all because how dare you deprive this world of that wonderful- It's like, yeah, the, the, the challenge is then like Kiwis, you really need to wise up. You really need to like, you really need to look around and smell the roses where there's no restrictions and you can go to restaurants and go to stadiums and hug people and all those sorts of things. I'm like, you guys are like do living- Do not it- like her but. No, how could you not like her? No, it's it's you know it's it's just everything. It's the cumulative effects, like the 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 twenty twenty cumulative effects of every every single news item that's led to this point. It's crazy. And look, what's great about this film and what's great about this exercise is that um, what's great and also is hard is like every single day you can't look away. Like you just can't look away from this movie. And you can't look away at people in a turbulent time, nor can you look away from your own turbulent time. Cause it's just like, man, every single day, there are little ways that we could have done better. We've got to be harder on ourselves, you know, to, to, to keep being better. Um, but holy shit, I can't help but empathize with so many great American and talented journalists and film people that I've spoken to who are like, Oh yeah, we're in our fifth month of lockdown and there's no end in sight and the numbers aren't going anywhere. And nothing's opening up and people are getting being broken. It's like living in LA and I'm like, dude, does it even make sense to live here anymore with wildfires? Like we've already experienced at the beginning of the year and, you know, political upheaval and, and, and this sort of thing. It just, it just seems like, man, the sooner that they can wipe this year off the map and move on the better. Well, you know, the um, QVB put up the Christmas tree early. The Christmas tree is already <laughs> up at the Queen Victoria building in Sydney. Okay, it's an ugly tree this year. Very ugly. Very ugly. I'm glad they put it up. I haven't been into the city. Oh, we saw it on Twitter and I was just like, what on earth is that? And apparently the justification is they wanted to bring joy to a, you know, obviously tough year. But it's like, it was August. You put it up in August. You cannot put it up. You cannot cannot put it up pre-Halloween. I'm going to put my foot down and say... Pre-Halloween, don't put it up. It's still way too early. Like, you know how gross it is when Christmas Well, you decor- have kids. It's, it's so much harder when you have little oh. people around you because they count down like mad and that is like they count down a long way out. Yeah. And also then like shops capitalize on that with like the Christmas decorations go down and immediately Easter stuff goes up and you're like, just get out of my face for five minutes. <laughs> like give me a week where I don't have to buy things or I don't have to have questions. Are you not collecting bloody plastic toys like Ushis or, oh, you man. know? <laughs> yeah. Just give me, give me some respite. The benefit of COVID-19 only in that respect is that usually it's my wife and I that go just to the shops by ourselves. Like one of us will tag team. It's date night, go to Woolies. Oh man, I wish. Um, but, <laughs> but it's like, you know, but it's just like one of us will go because it's like, then you're not going to fight off for Ushis, but they come home. Stupid Ushis. God damn it. Um, but you know, um, it's, it's a, it's a massive, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy year. This is when this is, we might not even get fireworks this year, Blake, like Sydney, city of Sydney is already like logistically, how on earth can we have new year's fireworks? So if you and can't, they plan these things 15 months in advance. So but like, Mel, but Mel, like I you don't, just go, Oh, not happening. 
but I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want fireworks if I can't be with my mates. Like so yeah. many new years, we usually spend it like one of my, one of my mates, Scotty, shout out to Scotty on the show. Hasn't had a mention in 96 episodes, but he will. We hang out at his place. It's usually all of our friends. Now many of us are like parents. So like it's, you know, the nine o'clock fireworks is usually yeah. a sign that we're, we're all, you know, a lot of us are heading home or, you know, sometimes it's like, if you, if you do have a, a baby that will sleep in a pram or in a bed, like you can go into one of the spare rooms and sort of all the kids are sort of piled up together. If you like very um, old school, but yeah, like if I can't hang out with my mates and then, you know, do the fireworks with the kids and all be around and it's like, Oh no, we can only have 20 people at the house. It's like, no, that's not, I mean, <laughs> now with, now with kids, like 20 is not even half the group. Like it's like, it's well, just not we gonna... worked out. We wouldn't even be able to have Christmas dinner because we did yeah. the numbers and we're like, we're already over 30 without any plus ones. Yeah. So, so it's like, what do we do? Do we do it in rotations? You can come for entree. You can come for mains. You get dessert. Well, I think mainly what's going to happen is you guys are going to split this into four locations and on the zoom, you're just all going to, sh- you're all going to show the dishes that you're ate. Like, you're just like, this is what we prepared at this house. And you know, everyone can have a sticky beak at what you're eating, but no, that's like, it's so weird. Like if you can't do it together, that's what's really strange. It's like, I can't do it together. So what's the point? Um, and yeah, I'm, you know, our family you know, does a big Christmas Eve thing and, um, there's, I mean, with plus ones and kids now, you kids, it, the kids take up so much. Yeah. 50, so many numbers. 50, 50 people is easy to do. So yeah, it's a, look, it's a strange time. It was actually a really relief. I went away with my family just for a weekend, um, uh, to, to a caravan park in Oz or a camper van park or whatever you guys want to call it, a trailer park, but like a, a, by the sea um, uh, in Australia um, uh, next to a beach. And it was like really weird and great because the caravan park has got rules about visitors so they can't be packed. But at the same time, like people can be there and X amount of people can be in all the caravans. So it actually felt like a real, like a kind of bubble of normal because kids are running around having a ball, riding bikes, jumping in pools, you know, little splash pads are open, going to the beach, you know, you're seeing lots of people like, it's really cool. Like, because it's not something that we've been able to experience thus far. It's pretty crazy. Look, we've had a great conversation about the world and I just looked at the time and I'm like, shit, we haven't talked about this minute. So let's dive in. 96th minute. We're in the middle of a great story or sort of tailing off of a great story with Jason Robards as Ben Bradley around how how good it is to be right but also how a sitting president of the united states can tell you to go fuck yourself even when you are because sometimes posting uh the story you know at the wrong time actually hamstrings a politician from making a decision which i think is very apt for the conversation that we started talking about mr bob woodward's book rage coming up so Mel and I are now going to watch the 96 minute. If you're watching that on your dial, it is one hour, 35 minutes. You're going to queue up up to the end of that, which gets us to 96, um, one hour, 36 minutes on the dial. But you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. You stuck us with Hoover forever. I screwed up and I went wrong. How much can you tell me about deep throat? How much do you need to know? You trust him? Yeah. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. 
trusting anybody. Gave you an immortal line. <laughs> Run that baby. <laughs> there's such an energy in it, isn't there? Like, you know, because it's such a slow film, there's such a build up to it. And it's like they've worked their asses off and they've gotten to the point where they get to hit go. Um, yeah, you feel that. Like, the way he like slaps his, his hands on the way out is just so appropriate. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a minute that's got everything, which is that I screwed up, but I wasn't wrong. Is it firstly, some of the, it's some of the best sage advice for anyone in your whole career of whatever you're doing, you can absolutely screw up and not be wrong because you were right in the wrong context. Um, which I just love. It's such a great sentiment. And I think that that's what brings me back to this movie over and over again, that I screwed up, but I wasn't wrong. And then that final inclination, like it's a beautiful little insight into him going, How, tell me what you can about Deep Throat. Like, what do you want to know? Can you trust him? And Woodward being, you know, Bob Woodward, Robert Redford in this movie, you know, says yes. And we know retroactively that he obviously can, but there's that great thing of like, I can't do your reporting, but I hate trusting anyone. <laughs> and it's such a relief. It's such a relief. I related so much. Like I, it, it just hit a real nerve because you're like, I'm not great at trusting people. Like I'm just <laughs> not. And I don't know whether that's because I've seen so much shit because you've like, you just see the absolute Ugh. worst of people and occasionally you see the best of people. Yeah. Um, but I, I know what he means is that you have to, the trust you have to have as an editor is the trust that you have trained and you've, you've trained your staff properly and you have created a culture that they want to live up to high standards. That's it. And that it still comes back to you. It's like, it's all on you. If this falls over, if you hit run it, if you shout, run it baby. And then it all backfires. <laughs> it's all on you. Like you end up taking the fall for it. Um, it's yeah. It's it just, it's such a good scene. Cause it just, shows so much from all sides of this whole process. Yeah. I, I, I can't imagine also, you know, you know it intimately, but the stakes of a Watergate with revelations this big, like big political players are saying deeply inflammatory things to journos, like especially the Mitchell one who's asleep. Like the, the, the response to the allegations is like, almost as incriminating as the allegations themselves. And so him going, holy shit, this is big. And then having to ask the question, because like now the stakes of this thing are getting really significant. No one's going to be able to hide if they're. No, and you have it, to make sure it's watertight. Yes. You just, you have to do, you know, you'll, you might have all the pieces for a story, but if, you can't prove it without a doubt, like to a certain extent, you know, people will return fire. And, 
and politicians can return fire with absolute lies. Yes. Like we've seen it with Trump. <laughs> <laughs> like he lies to the camera, but like there's a, there's a lot and there is a lot of trust involved between editors and journos. And I love that he, that um, Ben Bradley just said, how much can you tell me about deep throat? But doesn't actually say, tell me tell who me deep throat is. Yes. Which is such a big thing in journalism because to have that, if you've got a trusted source as an editor, you have to trust the journos faith in that source. Um, it's, it's just such a, like, it's funny. It made me, this whole scene made me think how many people do I actually trust to tell my deepest, (laughs) darkest secrets to? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I counted? Maybe three. There's like three people in my whole life that know pretty much like the depths of, of my shit. Yeah. Like, you just, you build, like, it's not necessarily I've maybe I've maybe got, yeah, I, I, there's a um, frequent guest of the show uh, and, and my best mate who I've just mentioned earlier and our mutual friend Maria Lewis um, has a great phrase recently, which we've all, we always repeat to one another when we speak in, uh, when we're speaking, she's like, save that shit for the group chat because there's like, <laughs> It's like my wife and and Maria and I have a group chat and you have those group chats in your life where it's like every little thing, every feeling, every frustration, everything, like it's kind of warts and all. And with those people, you can have that warts and all outlook. It's like, I will say, I can confess my darkest secrets. They know that, you know, I don't have, sorry, you don't need to confess your darkest secrets because they know them. But it's like, yeah, it's, I mean, that circle of trust is very small. It's very small. The vault, absolutely. The vault. the vault is, it's very small. Like, and, and I agree with you. It's like kind of three, maybe four people that warts and all know everything. And then, then there's another layer that, that, you know, get some security. You got to go through like a, a stint in some kind of isolation to get you're through that. You're taking your shoes off and you're going through an x-ray machine, but you're probably not getting the cavity search. Sort of like. Yeah. Like there's been, to, to get through into the vault, it takes years. Like you've got to occupy yeah. this other weird space for a while. It's kind of like the big brother house. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's a strange thing, but no, you're right. And that implicit thing of trust um, that he has to have is, you know, but feeling the confidence to be so emphatic, to be like, run that baby. And then the tap, and then the clap of his hands. Oh, I mean, it's. Do you think it, I, I got the sense it was a bit of revenge as well? Cause it was like, I think at that moment, they maybe knew the momentum, but they're on the verge of something massive. Like yes. I, I, I don't know if you saw the um, ABC documentary on the weekend, uh, the Kathy Freeman documentary. I haven't had a chance to watch it. I'm dying to. I'm oh dying my God. to. I, it, I mean, you know how it ends, but you're yeah. sitting there with your holding your breath. But it's this idea of like when you achieve these great feats, do you actually know beforehand? Like, is there a moment beforehand where you're like, I've got this? Like, yeah. That's what I'm always fascinated about is sort of like, like, and in that scene, you just like, you get that vibe that he was like, we got this. I know that, you know, this is huge. We're on the verge of something massive. Like you, you would ask, you know, filmmakers and, and actors, did you know you were working on something special? Like, did you know this film was going to be huge? Yeah. 
And I reckon sometimes you do. Sometimes you just, your gut instinct is this is worth every bit of this effort. Yeah. It's really crazy because I had a, one of my first like real film geek, like nerdy experiences. I was a real admirer and I still am to a certain extent of some of his films, Kevin Smith, you know, the man whose voice launched a thousand podcasts, um, mine included in some respects. Um, but I, I was, I was, I was in New York city. I was going to see his premiere of his film. I got to do an interview with him about it coming out and it was his film red state, which I think is a flat out masterpiece. Um, and a real, a real bunker buster of a movie to watch about a fundamentalist Christian cult who are armed and believe that the end is coming and then try and kidnap and murder people who they perceive as sinners. Real 2020 shit. Yeah. Real (laughs) 2020 shit. Um, But it was a, it was a long time ago that I saw it. And I remember asking him like, what does it feel like to have your ape, your ace up your sleeve? Because he was so emphatic that this was, you know, a turn for him and, you know, for better or worse, I don't, it had a bit of a mixed reception, but I think the people who love it, like myself, love it, you know, in a, in a really sort of euphoric, sort of, um, you know, f- f- gushing way. Um, and at the time he said fucking phenomenal. And I think that sometimes it's really hard to articulate like what it is that you've got, but like even the great Alan J. Pakula in episode 76, I opened the episode with this clip of him in an interview about this film and he said there's a moment i was filming dustin hoffman and jane alexander in the house scene with the bookkeeper so bernstein's interviewing the bookkeeper the real life judy hoback miller in the house that she lived so they rented the house so they could shoot it in the same house and he goes i was sitting there and i was watching these actors perform and and i felt like i should have to pay money to be there sitting on my little apple crate while i was watching it and i think that that's just that's what it is it's that gold dust it's like right now there's just something magic happening can't quite put my finger on what it is, but it's really magic. And I think what you just touched on something that happens in this movie and it's so great to talk to you at this minute because it echoes so deeply with the end is I think that this movie has great moments and setbacks, but it has, it acknowledges those wins when they happen. And then what happens is like right now we feel like, Oh, we've just found out a really high ranking official has been in charge of a government slush fund and has been, you know, doing all this stuff. But after, set, after the next few setbacks that happen, the colossal bomb that drops is like, it goes all the way to the top. And in that same moment, Bradley has another conversation like this, except he's doing it in a robe, standing out the front of his house <laughs> at midnight, talking to people whispering behind a tree. And it's, I think that that's, it's these kind of moments that when people say, what is your favorite moment in all the president's men? Um, had a great film critic named Craig, Craig Lindsay on the episode before us. And Craig Lindsay said, you know, I love this moment where you cut to and Ben Bradley looks like Dolomite, like as in Eddie Murphy's character, Dolomite, like, you know, the, the, you know, he's got the, the velvet suit and all that, but it's these moments that are like, they sing the, the whole, they make the whole movie sing. It's because it's like your trust is being rewarded you are holding the standard. These two guys who you didn't even know their names before are now able to have a dialogue, like and be the last three guys in the newsroom with a, you know, their managing editor and like go run that baby. And you trust that they're going to get it right. Like that's, that's why this movie is completely addictive for me. It's such a good movie. And you can, for me, like having worked in newspapers, started in newspapers, you can smell the ink. 
Yeah. Like in this movie, like you can smell that office. You, you know what, you know, the, the mix of, of newspaper and alcohol and sweat <laughs> and probably in those days some stale <laughs> cigarettes hanging around. But it's just, there, there is a camaraderie in it. Like even from, you know, um, you know, I want to say warring, but opposing papers. There's a camaraderie in, like you will see in Australia, so many redundancies and people will rally and be like, this is a terrible day for the industry. It does not matter what company it is. Yes. People yeah. are just like, there, there is this camaraderie because you're in the trenches together. Like you've, you know what I mean? Like there's yes. this bond of like, we've, we've seen the shit. <laughs> we know what, we know what it takes. And it's, you know, there's, I don't think that bond will ever go. Like I'm some of my, most of my dearest friends have worked alongside me because it's just, you know, you, you get each other. You, you just recognize the scars. <laughs> <laughs> you recognize the scars. You know, that this person, the cirrhosis can, of the liver, the cirrhosis of the liver <laughs> this person, this person's glazed over. They look damp. They look like they've been drinking. I, I can definitely, I can definitely, they look like you're in two day old clothes. They can, they're very, okay. whip, they're whip smart. I, when I was at the Telegraph, <laughs> I used to keep the spare set of clothes in my drawer. Oh, bless and, you. And a toothbrush and some toothpaste. Cause I was just like, yeah I, yeah, I would go out drinking, like crash at someone's <laughs> house and then turn up for work the next day and I'd just change my clothes and off I'd go again. Off you go again. It's, that's, that's one thing. If there's one decent thing that has happened in this whole shitty year of 2020 when it comes to like journalistic redundancies is that there's so many great stories of journalists who've like, taken it in their own hands to like restore a paper, like a weekly paper, you know, sorry, a daily paper in a rural area turns into a weekly and they figure out through like subscriptions and sponsorships to kind of like keep the thing afloat so that they can keep working and keep telling their stories and like that's important to their town. And, and I think that that's going to happen. I think just like everything right now, we're in a period of contraction, but like, you know, journalists are going to be more important than ever. And there are going to be more journalism jobs available, you know, once everything opens back up in the world actually looks like it restores to normal. But the only thing you can hope is like revelations like that, that are drummed up by Woodward. I think this is what everyone expected with that book fire and fury when it first came out, like uh, um, uh, inside the Trump white house, like the fire and fury. And there was, uh, there was the Woodward equivalent that happened as well. Like that it he was did. fear. Fear. That's right. Sorry. Fear. And then this one's rage. Rage. Right? Yeah. So yeah. sorry. Fire and fury came. I was like, nah, I'm sorry, Michael Wolf. This isn't going to be enough. Like we're going to need Bob Woodward on this thing. And everyone read the fear and we're like, eh, it's yeah. Like it's kind of a lot of the same stuff that we'd already read, but I think that, yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it, who knows if any of this is actually going to turn into a, like a conviction. It's not, it's not, that's what's so great and satisfying about the movie. The bookends of history tell us that like all these bastards get it. There are Senate hearings that are go on live every day. And it's like, oh boy, like I, 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 to see all those people with the surname Trump have to line up and speak to a Senate hearing and be arrested and have all of their possessions taken from them and all those sorts of things. And like have to, you know, pay for the crimes that they've committed. Like that's the best outcome, but is it going to happen? I'm, Only time I would not be surprised at all if he gets back in again. Oh, 
I mean, this, it, to 2020, <laughs> nothing's a surprise. No. But, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I kind of, it just seems even harder this time to sort of rise above that because having to register to vote, the safety of going out to vote, you know, you've got the whole postal system now that, like, Trump's actively defunding and, you know, I mean, we've got our own problems here where it's like Australia Post only wants to deliver every second day and you're like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? You're sitting there like, hang on, hang on. I ordered something and it's it's going to take, you know, weeks to get here because there's not enough flights anymore and all this stuff. But America's like relying on their postal system for an election and it's just it's bizarre that you would remove post boxes and like that you would, you know, criticize the system and, and like actively instill that distrust that you can't use this voting method. It's not real and it's not going to work and blah, 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 blah. Just, it blows my mind. The whole thing. I'm just like, you guys are up shit Creek. Let's hope. Not a paddle inside. Let's all, all that we can hope for as uh, as as your friends and colleagues on the other side of of the Pacific ditch is that that all those millions and millions of people that drastically would tip the scale decide that mail-in voting can happen and shit you know when the election day is going to happen so if you're listening and you're uh, you, uh, and you needed a reminder um that you know how to do that and vote, like actually just get it done. Because like, I think even in Oz, I haven't really ever had to do an absentee ballot other than, uh, you know, if you move in, if you move into state or you move, you know, to other regions in the country, sometimes like you're not on your local ballot paper. So you have to do an absentee ballot for where you may be. And then they figure it out. And, you know, sometimes there's a small proportion of absentee ballots that, um, you know, need that need to be reconciled at the end of the election. But usually it's pretty emphatic either way whatever happens but it's like if you um, we get everything counted in a day and we know by saturday night who you know out of 20 million people so it's like if every state does that in the united states like and you can if you've got months in advance surely you can have like a pre-tally you can have a pre-tally of how many million people and see like hey based on last year's numbers we can see that 50 percent of the country's already voted in by mail like of the usual well, what's going to be really interesting is when they um when they when there are so many mail-in votes, because I know in Australia you're not, even with mail-ins, you're not allowed to start counting until a certain point on election night. So they have them all stored up and locked up and then they can't start counting until a certain part of the night. So, of course, last election, last federal election, there was already a lot of mail-ins. I don't know what these people are doing because, honestly, you're missing out on the sausage by <laughs> doing the early voting. Like you've just cheated yourself out of the deliciousness. But anyway... So there was, it does take a lot longer to count. You can't please some you, people. You can't please some people. I know. But the broadcasts, they're timed to like, okay, so we'll get some speeches at about, you know, what, 10 o'clock at night, usually mm-hmm. 9.30, 10 on a decent night. But last unless time they it, hadn't... Unless it's emphatic. If it's really yeah. emphatic, sometimes you know at 8 or you know at 7. Yeah, and like, you're like... Tony Abbott was out pretty damn quick with it. They were just like gone. I was yeah, like, so. okay, pleasant night. Let's just crack <laughs> open another bottle of wine. Um, but yeah, it, because there were so many posters last time, it did drag out. And it got to the point where Lee Sales, who was hosting it, 
was just like, we have no result yet and we've got to get off the air because we've been broadcasting for like six hours or something. And it's like, so can you imagine the US? They're not going to have a result that night. No. What are these broadcasters going to be talking about all night long? But but that was like the, the Bush, you know, in the year 2000, the Bush-Gore election had no result for a week. And at that stage of the country, and I've heard some great comedians talk about it, it's like at that stage, the country of the United States the late night talk shows went on and laughed. Like we don't need a president who gives a shit. Like, and that was the, maybe the solidarity and the unity that was more present in the country, just like across the full spectrum of politics. It was like, we're American and this is what it is. And it's fine. Like, even though there was frustration in that electoral process and confusion and all those things, it was like, ah, we don't need a president. Like there actually was still a sitting president there waiting to hand over the reins of presidency, but it was fine. Like, but, but I think when you pile on, like, it's like, it's so hard to qualify and so hard. I think if anyone is ever listening to this podcast years later, it's like going to be so hard to qualify and for you to fully understand just the mounting pressure of every single bit of police violence of pandemic, you know, the, the disproportionate ways that the pandemic have affected poor people, the craziness of all these like news stories and lies and fabrication, like, um, you know, the ongoing strangeness of different police violence in state by state that keeps going and the, the affronting ways that it keeps happening. All these peaceful protesters getting twisted into things, you know, all this stuff. It's like, it feels like all these mounting things. If that election night doesn't have a result, like America oh. might, America might set itself on fire. <laughs> And the fire it, might not go out. I would not be surprised. It's, I think there's a lot of, you can feel the anger. Like yeah. even the other side of the world, you can feel the anger. And rightfully so. Like you understand where that is coming from. Yes. The big thing for me is, and it, you know, yes, it's easier for me to say because I'm a white woman, but it's using that anger and fueling it and directing all that rage into turning up and voting. Yeah. Like, you you have that power and it's just like you just have to it, it's a long i mean these sorts of protests started earlier in the year like yeah. you know it, that's a long slog to get to november maintain that range and put it to you know the best possible use of getting him out of the Listen, White house in in every almost every other instance i would agree with you and i would just say no it's not hard to maintain the rage it's not because every day, every day police violence across the country is insane. Like, I mean, in Australia, we have absolutely some serious stuff. And even um, someone just in New South Wales in t today, like where we live, where a policeman ran a guy down and then kicked him in the head when he was on the ground. And this is all caught on cam. And a lot of these police are meant to have body cams. And it's just like... Yeah, police around the world, there can be, you know, there can be some real dickish cops. Like there's definitely great police who are there to serve and protect. But man, there are some people who've got a violent streak and when people go against them or when people don't comply with them, they lash out and they don't lash out. You know, in, in Australia, we're so lucky that not many of our police ever would draw a weapon as a first inclination, but man, they had a car. So that's just as bad as a gun. You know, they ran a guy down. But in the States, like, you know, people getting shot seven times in the back for not complying with a police order, like that is, 
And some people going, oh, well, you know, that person wasn't responding to the police. Like that not being a, someone not understanding how awful that is and not just agreeing that universally that that's awful. That's scary. Like that's scary, you know? And I think that that's where the rage sometimes turns to depression and, and melancholy. Cause it's like, if I can't even talk to these people about what's blatantly inhumane about that, then I don't understand how we can even have a dialogue. It's that the rage becomes exhausting. Yes. Like it's, do you know, it's, yes, more, it's yes. not so that they're not, they can't maintain that passion. It's more that the rage is exhausting. It's hard. Like, and again, I'm, I'm looking at this as an outsider, but it must be, you know, exhausting to just have to fight that every single day and all these yeah. little things that like, like, you know, like in the Kathy Freeman documentary, she mentions this bit that, that actually made me cry. She said, as a kid, I didn't understand why people wouldn't smile back at me. And you're just like, oh, my God, my heart breaks. She was like a child. She was like primary school. And she's like, I just could not understand why people wouldn't smile back at me. And it was like, and there was an incident oh. she mentions when she was 10 and she won the race but wouldn't, wasn't given her medal because she was Aboriginal. And you're like, what? Like, it just... It's and then the hoo ha, like the absolute uproar over her carrying the indigenous, the Aboriginal flag, along with the Australian fat flag at the Commonwealth Games. And you're watching it now, going, "What? What are you? What's the big deal? Like, why were they angry about that?" But you're just like, it was such a, a, um, like people just took such umbrage at it that they were like personally attacked by it, and it was like, why? Because she's proud of her heritage. And, and also, it's like there's there's those great lines that people like, I think it's Tim Doyle, the stupid politician today was like, keep politics out of sport. And it's like, no politics is like sport. This is how people engage. This is how, you know, this is, this is how disenfranchised people engage on the How many politicians have gone onto a cricket pitch, Blake? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How many politicians pretend they're into sport? Yeah, it's, it's like the, um, you know, you know what I mean. The the shots of John Howard attempting to bowl a, like a, 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 a an over down the cricket pitch <laughs> and absolutely fucking it up royally. Like that's why I actually quite liked Bob Carr because he was like, no, nah, don't fucking care about sport and didn't pretend to. No, and that's what I, you know what I mean. I actually, I respect. No, but you that respect you respect like, the authenticity because it's like, look, I, exactly. I'm not I'm not into sport. Um, and you know, a lot of people, including Lawrence Mooney, um, a very funny comedian in Oz who makes his, you know, made his bones like mocking, um, uh, prime minister Malcolm Turnbull was like always about that. Like, you know, mocking him with Chardonnays and all that sort of nonsense and never, and, and like getting all the sports references wrong. But yeah, look, it's, it's Kathy Freeman's an, a fascinating and inspirational cat and like literally so groundbreaking in so many ways. And it's, it's um it's interesting to feel like it's normalized, but you know it's it's hard for me to grasp at the time. But there was a lot of controversy about the Indigenous flag at those Commonwealth Games, and then when she came out and she's at the Sydney Olympics on the biggest stage in the entire world, standing up there waiting to light the torch, and I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than her profile and the things that she did and being a great person. And um yeah. And it's, it's, I think I'm, I'm dying to watch another movie. See, this is a recommendation. We're talking about another <laughs> film, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a crazy world and it gets tired. It, it gets tired. And even like Adam Goods, you know, hindsight, hindsight was required to actually compile the narrative of all of that news telling to see through it, to see how bad people were reacting to it and to see 
the spectrum of responses and to go, it all just got spun completely out of control and it was blatantly racist and it took people to actually time to reflect on it and go, this is what needs to happen. And even now in the midst of this year, there's also been other controversies that have happened like players like Hector Lumumba and those things that have come out and said, no, you know, in Australia, the AFL is still racist or in the NRL, there's still people saying racist stuff and there's still racial inequality. So yeah, it's the only thing it can be is it's tired. It's tired. This I'm tired. I'm tired, Mel. Yeah. And we're, we're on the other side of we're it. On the other side. <laughs> oh, no. Um, one yeah, I don't, I don't envy them. I don't envy you guys, but we're with you in all of our empathy and our love and our time. And we, we hope that anyone who's fighting the good fight, um, you know, fighting the good fight for progress and fighting the good fight for empathy around the world, we're your allies and we're with you. Um, and you know, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting case study in post-traumatic stress and just stress, uh, for everyone and the connectedness of having a screen that like takes you to the front lines of this shit um, around the world. I think we're all going to need a good lie down at the end of these. <laughs> oh my gosh. I need it now. I need it now. <laughs> Mel Matheson, it has been absolutely unreal talking to you. Thank you for helping me kick this journey off. Thank you for all your support and encouragement of this project. Um, so not many people would know, but right behind the scenes when I was kicking this off, um, Mel was extremely excited and supportive about it. Um, so much so that she, we were even going to maybe be working together on it. Um, it didn't end up happening because, you know, corporations make bad decisions and that's not <laughs> her fault. Um, but um, I just want to say thank you because uh, it was all the more emphatic to make it happen this year and to make it happen as urgently as it happened and then to make it happen um, so that it would all happen in 2020. So I just want to say a huge thank you on the show because this will be the last time likely that we're going to be talking on this show about this movie. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and it's such a great project. You should be very proud of yourself. Hope you got a, a good bottle of something for the end of it, for the last scene. Uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> um, I was very lucky. I was very spoiled at the end of One Eight Minutes. Some friends bought a beautiful bottle of Johnny Walker Blue, which is not finished Ooh. yet. So maybe uh, the final episode will involve polishing that bad boy off. But uh, yes, I will. I will make sure that the liquor cabinet is stocked for the final scenes of this movie. Maybe you can have a sausage sizzle. <laughs> you can have some la- democracy and, sausage. And, and I'll make a brisket and some lamingtons <laughs> and it'll be a goddamn party. <laughs> it will. That was my joyful and wonderful guest, Mel Matheson. Mel underscore Matheson, M-A-T-H-E-S-O-N is where you can find her on Twitter. Thank you guys so much for listening again to the show. I just cannot believe um, that we're finally into the really juicy minutes of this thing together. Thank you for continuing with us. Thank you for your support in every single way, whether it has been monetarily via our Patreon at Patreon forward slash one heat minute and getting a bonus podcast, whether it's been shares, retweets, shout outs, recommendations to people to listen. We love you. Thank you so much. Some great shows on the feed right now. Obviously, All the President's Men is all over there. All the President's Minutes rather is all over there. Increment Vice, Miami Nice, so many other podcasts, Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, One Heat Minute, of course, and a back catalogue of Josie and the Podcats. If you want to follow us, one Blake Minute on Instagram and Twitter, at ATPMPod, OneHeatMinute.com, mail at One Heat Minute. We'll catch you on another episode tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding 
or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.